The Queen of Egyptology by William Copley Winslow Amelia Blandford Edwards, the Honorary Secretary for Great Britain of the Egypt Exploration Fund, did her best and most enduring work as an Egyptologist. I use this still somewhat occult designation in a broad as well as a technical sense. Was she wonderfully versatile in various lines of intellectual labor? She was also many-sided as an Egyptologist. When she vividly painted the many prerequisites of the successful explorer in situ in one of her lectures, I inwardly said, what a queen among explorers you would make. As an incipient Egyptologist in 1874, she wriggled in through an aperture about a foot and a half square in discoveries at Abu Simbel, so graphically told by her in Chapter 18 of A Thousand Miles Up the Nile. Yes, this woman, whose face graces this number of the American antiquarian, born on June 7, 1831, and actually writing for a weekly journal an accepted poem in 1838, entitled The Knights of Old, at the age of nine, winning the prize for a temperance story, sending to George Cruikshank for the omnibus in 1845 a tale with such deft caricature pencilings on the back of the manuscript as to inspire him to at once call on the rare unknown, to be greeted by a blooming maiden of but fourteen. This woman, who rang out musical notes with such flexibility and compass at the age of twenty that the opera would seem to be her destined profession, who was well known in 1853 as a contributor to periodical literature and as a full-blown novelist from then till 1864, when that still favorite romance, Barber's History, appeared, who in 1865 produced a little volume of ballads and then in turn became a reviewer on the staff of the London Morning Post, Saturday Review, Graphic Illustrated News, and other journals, who as a traveler in 1873 prepared that spirited book on the Dolomite Mountains with her own illustrations, untrodden peaks and unfrequented valleys, and who published in 1880 that combinative novel of travel, scenery, incident, society, and plot, Lord Brackenberry, translated into French, German, Italian, and Russian. This woman, I say, in entering the lists of Egyptology, must perforce be many-sided, prismatic, quick-sighted, and largely sympathetic. Miss Edwards knew Egypt personally, and its history completely. She mastered the literature of research and exploration, and caught the freshest news of every discovery. The late Sir Erasmus Wilson wrote me that she is in the advance of the advanced authorities upon the results of the latest discoveries. She was profoundly interested in whatever cast light on philological and ethnical questions, or that related to the arts or sciences of contemporaneous nations, and withal she had a fair or respectable knowledge of the hieroglyphic text. Her talents, tastes, previous training, studies in her adopted profession, eminently qualified her for the post of honorary secretary of the society which she, with Sir E. Wilson and Professor R. Stuart Poole, founded in 1883. Nay, was she not born to be an Egyptologist? For, as a child, she tells us, Wilkinson's manners and customs of the ancient Egyptians shared my affections with the Arabian Nights. I knew every one of the six hundred illustrations by heart. Doubtless, too, her official position inspired her superabounding versatility to claim, The boundless field is mine. So, by nature and by grace and otherwise, it came about that Miss Edwards was the best delineator that old Egypt has ever had. The Saturday Review thinks, No other writer did so much to render Egypt popular. Hers was preeminently the role of interpreter. April 23. 
Her lectures to American audiences, in their substance and expressions, most happily established my claim. Her advent christening as an enthusiastic amateur in Egyptology may date from 1877, when A Thousand Miles Up the Nile appeared, and her confirmation in that science from 1881, when she had critically mastered all the details of the unprecedented discovery of the royal mummies at Thebes, and substantially assisted Sir E. Wilson in preparing his book, The Egypt of the Past, which she was revising the last year of her life. Harper's Magazine of July 1882, under the title Lying in State in Cairo, gives her clear, picturesque, delightful story anent these royal mummies. Both Lady Amelia, she was, by the way, maternally descended from the Walpoles, and Sir Erasmus afford an interesting parallel or coincidence. Late in the afternoon of life he took up the study of Egypt, preparing, as a result, the best work in its scope on ancient Egypt that I know of, already referred to, and she, a novelist and journalist, when entering upon middle age, giving the world a most captivating, inspiring, instructive book that has become, as a pocket edition, almost another Baedeker to the Nile tourist. One of Miss Edwards' pamphlets is in substance her paper read at the Congress of Orientalists, held at Leyden in 1884, entitled On a Fragment of a Mummy Case, illustrated by herself. Here I may exemplify the clearness and grace with which she transcribed hieroglyphs. On page 212 of the New England Magazine for April 1890, I introduced a facsimile of her manuscript that she had intended solely for my own eye. The characters are models of elegant drawing, yet I am sure that Miss Edwards executed them with a running hand. Some of my readers will pleasantly recall her electric manual touches upon the blackboard in her lecture upon the evolution of Egyptian letters and text. Another little brochure is on The Dispersion of Egyptian Antiquities, a paper read at the Leyden Congress. Still another at the Vienna Congress of 1886 on the same topic emphasizes the immense importance of obtaining some knowledge of the numerous private collections which are being thus rapidly enriched in Europe and America. The author ventures to think that many a lost chapter of Egyptian history might be recovered, at least in part, from the cabinets of wealthy amateurs. In 1888, Miss Edwards put forth a paper of valuable data on the provincial collections, such as the Peel Park Museum in Manchester and the Mayer Collection at Liverpool. Mr. R. N. Cust, at the Congress which met in 1889 at Stockholm and Christiana, presented her paper upon the Cypriot, Phoenician, and other signs upon the potsherds found by Mr. Petrie in the Fayum. The Times special correspondent, referring particularly to this paper, said, the dates of which the characters assigned to the 12th and 18th dynasties have led to the conclusion that the Greco-Phoenician alphabet was in use in Egypt at a period antecedent to the date of the Exodus. On September 18, 1889, my friend wrote me from Richmond Villa at Weston, Supermare, in her usual frank vein of discourse as to what was doing and what she was about. By this post I send you parts of two times newspapers, I am not sure whether I did or did not send you the article I wrote on Mr. Petrie's closing work in the Fayum, July 20th. I therefore send a copy with the one on his exhibition published last Monday. The letter contains a brief reference to my paper written for the Stockholm Congress, which you may like to paragraph. I was the first person to identify the signs on Mr. Petrie's potsherds. His mother sent me his weekly letters all the time he was in Egypt. She always does so and upon them I write my notices of his work in the Times. 
In one or two of these letters he gave facsimile sketches of the potsherd graffiti, and I sent him by next post numerous identifications of them, with Cypriot, Phoenician, Lycian, Theron, Phrygian, Estruscan, and other letters. I never told a living soul about it, and when Poole and all of them were talking of the wonderful rumors, I gravely kept silent, though I had seen and identified them. And they say a woman cannot keep a secret. Sace visited Petrie in the Fayum weeks after and re-identified them precisely as I had done. There are over sixty Cypriot letters among them. It is the discovery of our day. The fact is, the subject is of extraordinary interest and importance. The American Geographical Society, in its Bulletin of December 1890, published her paper on recent discoveries in Egypt, being, in part, her lecture before the Society in Chickering Hall, New York, and it also appeared in pamphlet form. Its discussion of Mr. Petrie's discoveries at Tel Gurub and Tel Cahun in the Fayum is based on her Stockholm treatise of that remarkable philological revelation. But two of Dr. Edwards' American magazine articles will be referred to here. Harper's October 1886 contained The Story of Tanis, Zoan, which, as an archaeological paper in a popular magazine, is, as a whole, without its peer, at least in my humble opinion. Its background of study and research, its grouping of historical data and exploration details, its dignity and classic finish, its imaginative play, resting on ascertained conditions and established topography, in the portrayal of Zoan in all its glory, when Ramses oppressed Israel, particularly in the description of the scene which a stranger approaching that great northern capital of the pharaohs would have witnessed, when the king of all colossi in Egypt and all the world towered in majesty above the vast temple. These and more stamp this article as a masterpiece of archaeological and historical verbal painting. And yet, in Bubastis, a historical study, the initial contribution to the century for January 1890, there is an equally charming delineation of that marvelous discovery by Dr. Neville, king of hieroglyphists, albeit simpler told, and if anything more to the point. It is much in the style of her lectures. Indeed, Miss Edwards almost affected simplicity of style the last two or three years of her life. This may have been owing to her constant writing for the Times and the Academy, and particularly because of her latest vocation, that of a lecturer to popular audiences, when she became largely colloquial in her manner of speech. And that simple manner, combined with dignity of bearing, always took her listeners by storm. When the fun's volume on Goshen, that invaluable discovery, appeared, I suggested to my colleague that its style was too dry to produce the effect in the United States that I wished in influencing people to aid our work. It should be more in your style, I believe I wrote. Alas, I admit all that you say about Goshen. It is dry and too profound, she replied. Yet how deeply interesting to us. I am astonished at the closeness of the reasoning, how ingenious and convincing it is, even to the identification of the water of Ra with the Heliopolitan spring. My dear friend, it is of no use to compare Naval's reports in the Academy with mine in the Times. You must remember that the Egyptologists do not write a picturesque and popular style like that of A.B.E., who has had thirty years of literary work in the Romantic school, and who has especially cultivated style, worked at it as if it was a science, and mastered it. I study style like a poet, calculating even the play of vowel sounds and the music of periods. Style is an instrument which I have practiced sedulously. 
and which I can play upon. But our Egyptologists, etc., what do they know of the subtle harmony? They have never flung themselves into the life and love of imaginary men and women. They have never studied the landscape painting of scenery in words. They have no notion of the art, the dexterity, the ear required for musical English. They have no time for such things. It is not their vocation. I am the only romancist in the world who is also an Egyptologist. We must not expect the owl of Athena to warble like the nightingale of Keats. Adieu, your devoted friend, A. B. Edwards. The Britannica Encyclopedia has some specimens of Miss Edwards' good workmanship in her adopted profession, and also a special article from her for the American edition on the recent discoveries in Egypt. Her series of papers on the question, Was Ramses II the Pharaoh of the Oppression, were, I believe, gathered into a sheaf, but I have never seen it. From the founding of our society till the last year of her life, she contributed occasionally to the graphic and the illustrated news, and regularly to the Times, articles upon our work in Egypt that were of the highest value to the cause. They were copied into our American newspapers, and I utilized them in various other ways. The loss of my associate to me in this particular is simply irreparable. From her I got the latest news, and by her personal letters I learned of the plans in advance of each season's campaign. Miss Edwards' more scholarly, but never abstruse or dry, journalistic contributions on Egypt appeared in the Academy. Says its editor, Mr. J. S. Cotton, of her work, The Academy has suffered by her death an irreparable loss. During the past fifteen years she must have contributed to our columns more than one hundred articles, many of considerable length, and all requiring some research. We know not whether to admire in them most the brilliancy of their narrative style or the accuracy with which each detail was verified. She was, in truth, a model contributor, never declining a request, punctual to her promises, writing in a clear, bold hand, and considerate of the convenience of the printer as well as editor. I wish to press home the truthful remark of Mr. Cotton as to the accuracy of Miss Edwards' details or special statements based on research. The Saturday Review considers that her books are deserving of special praise for the small percentage of error they contain. In a New York weekly journal, The Epic, of March 28, 1890, an anonymous correspondent, under the caption, Miss Amelia B. Edwards' Blunders, made a wholesale onslaught on her lectures, charging her with being ignorant of her themes and abounding in gross misstatements. All sheer bosh and nonsense is one of his elegant applications to the lecture which treats of animal worship. I advise my readers to see this reviewer's contribution and the reply of Miss Edwards through me in the epoch of June 6th. One citation will tell the tale. The reviewer said, she made a great deal out of an old snatch of a threshing song, which she even mistranslated, he exclaimed. Ye gods of Egypt, did ever such sounds offend your ears? Miss Edwards' retort, so suggestive of fine thrashing qualities, is simple. The translation which I gave of that song, Pharaohs, Fellows, and Explorers, Lectures in the United States, pages 236 and 307, was made expressly for this lecture by Mr. Lepage Renouf, keeper of the Egyptian department in the British Museum and successor to Dr. Birch as president of the Society of Biblical Archaeology, whose profound and accurate knowledge of the structure and grammar of the ancient Egyptian language is unsurpassed. Mr. Charles Dudley Warner's pithy words in the July Harpers are a good peroration to our claim 
for her painstaking accuracy. She never wrote about anything she did not know. A letter of January 12, 1885, remarks as follows. Most nights I have been at the desk till 2 and 3 a.m., and the Times article was a matter of the whole night long. My eyes are suffering, and I feel ten years older than I did three weeks ago. Enough of self. Let me turn to your marvelous work in New York. Well, no one but yourself, I think, could have performed that feat of physical and mental and diplomatic achievement. And in the midst of it, you could actually sit down at the Astor House and write. Write that lucid, compact, decisive, exhaustive article for the churchman. The churchman of December 28, 1884, on the site of the biblical Zoan, etc. This is wonderful to me. I cannot write except in my own library, at my own desk, with everything to hand and perfect peace and quiet. If our old gardener whistles at his work, pruning or weeding in the vegetable garden behind my library, I have actually to send out to him to leave off. If the maids chatter in my hearing, I stop them. I suppose I am very strong, too, but my strength now is more fictitious than real, more nervous than solid. Yet not so very long ago I walked up the highest mountain in central France, four hours up and three hours down, and then declared myself ready to do it again if anybody liked to turn back with me. I could not do that now. These lines are now of peculiar interest. I look now to Griffith and Petrie, she is referring to Englishmen, to carry on the torts of Egyptian learning in the future, when Poole and I shall have passed away. My work will, I hope, in a sense, go on forever, in the limited sense of our forever, for I have made my will and left an endowment for a professorship of Egyptology to University College London. I wish I could spare the money at once and see it working before I die, but that is impossible. They will have my Egyptian library, collection of antiquities, etc., etc. This is private. Another, dated November 16, 1885, contains these paragraphs. Your long and most interesting and very confidential letter delighted me. There are some parts which I should prefer not to destroy, as they relate to me, and tell me facts which I am very happy and humbly thankful to know. I mean as to the light in which my labors are viewed in America. I do work conscientiously. I never review a book, for instance, without carefully reading it, and I never put anything down as facts without having first gone to every reference on the subject, and when I am not positively sure of a thing, I always qualify my words with, I think, or I believe. If your people find me reliable, I rejoice that they are so convinced, because they do me justice, and it shows they know enough, I mean the general public, to discriminate on abstruse subjects between theorists and positivists. I am a positivist in science, and like the elephant I try the bridge with my trunk before I venture to cross it, but I fear they terribly overrate me in other ways. I am a very indifferent hieroglyphist. I have not time to work at texts, as I did once. My energies are diverted into the practical grooves of Egyptology, that is, exploration, and the acquisition and analysis of all that is learned, discovered, and translated in whatever country and from whatever sources. I try to let nothing escape me, and perhaps take me all round. I know more about Egyptian history and recent results than anybody else, but I am not a translator, and I fear now I never shall be. Had Miss Edwards' life been spared another decade, the world would have been the richer by at least two or three more new books of a caliber and merit equal to her pharaohs, fellows, and explorers, 
and my earnest hope is that her revision of Wilson's Egypt is about ready for the publisher, as it is the work on the history of the dynasties and marked epochs of Egypt for the general reader, and singularly useful for reference. Her translation of Maspero's Egyptian Archaeology gives to the English reader a most authoritative textbook on the architecture and art of the ancient Egyptians. But this translation, with notes, her volume of lectures, her thousand miles up the Nile, together with the brochures and magazine articles, reveals sufficiently to us the structure and compass of her mind and its capacities of expression. Broad as is that mental structure, the ability to convey its knowledge intelligently, captivatingly, to others, is almost phenomenal, certainly so in the realm of archaeology. She could turn her searchlight power of discernment upon points of investigation or announce results, and then touch her conclusions with remarkably exact local colors and a felicitous polychrome. Shall I discriminate? Miss Edwards' genius belongs to the objective rather than the subjective school, and she assiduously cultivated her powers and tastes in the direction of objects rather than subjects of thought, or, if the latter, from without rather than from within. She splendidly illustrated what it is to see and think through the eye rather than through pure reason. I do not know indeed that she ever read Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, and Hamilton, and although she could aptly quote the immortal Dogberry and other Shakespearean characters, yet I think she enjoyed the wit more than the human philosophy of Shakespeare. She was searching, investigating, logical for a woman in her deductions. Witness her treatment of the Ka question. But she lacked at least in her novels that imperial philosophic element, the subjective insight and genius of creation which permeates and sways the Daniel Durandas that are given the world. Lord Brackenbury, so full of life, light, color, and abounding in suggestions to the imagination and eye, typifies, I think, the objective novel as distinctively as Middlemarch represents the subjective novel of our day. This may explain why some people fail to appreciate Miss Edwards' novels, who praise her as an archaeologist. But readers, novelists, archaeologists are not all alike, thank heaven, and my associate was not a Brookscht, a Neville, or a Mespero, or anyone else but herself. Among her novels are My Brother's Wife, Half a Million of Money, Miss Carew, Debenham's Vow, In the Days of My Youth, Monsieur Maurice, Hand in Glove. Miss Edwards, as she told me, was never satisfied with her earlier romances. She wrote An Abridgment of French History, and her Outlines of English History is still a textbook in American schools. She was sui generis. She knew the whole field of Egyptology better than any man, and no one could approach her word power to describe the field on the side of history, art, and exploration. I pray for, but I never expect to see, another Edwards in the domain of Egyptology. The queenly title is hers. On November 7, 1889, was given in the Brooklyn Academy of Music Miss Edwards' initial lecture in America, the Reverend Dr. R. S. Storrs making an address of welcome on behalf of the large and distinguished audience of representative men and women of New York and Brooklyn. Up to the date of her departure for home on March 28th, she gave in all about 120 public lectures in various parts of the land, some of them under the auspices of such institutions as Yale, Princeton, Amherst, Columbia, 
the universities of michigan and pennsylvania the peabody institute of baltimore and the boston museum of fine arts in columbus ohio she broke her left arm but undaunted she lectured that evening and fulfilled every appointment thereafter that had been made for her it was over a year from that untoward accident before she recovered even a moderate use of that arm the following facts illustrate her amazing pluck and endurance arriving in new york some two or three weeks after the accident and being in much pain the arm was reset she then attended a luncheon party followed by a small reception the afternoon was devoted to the annual meeting of the cirrhosis club where she was enrolled an honorary member and given a splendid banquet at eight o'clock she was at the metropolitan opera house to read a paper on the birth and growth of romantic fiction as illustrated in egyptian literature of the two other speakers on cognate topics one took exception to her claim of the egyptian origin of such and such and so and so it was a meeting of the nineteenth century club of freelance proclivities and practices although past ten o'clock and insufferably hot miss edwards in an off-hand but unhesitatingly clear fluent forcible humorous speech of about twenty minutes length completely carried her audience with her so at least the tribune said and it was my own impression as the memorial minutes of the committee in england of the fun truly say of miss edwards lectures on both sides of the atlantic she has made egyptology a household word representing a new intellectual interest no single achievement of my life is more gratifying to me than my successful effort to induce my friend to visit the united states the invitation was a fitting avant coureur to the welcome and success that everywhere were hers having written over two hundred personal notes to representative men and women in every department of life and work i put out a leaflet on march first eighteen eighty nine upon her capacities to lecture and her topics to which i appended the following invitation signed by whittier lowell holmes curtis warner parkman booth vanderbilt morton stores the editors of harper's the century the atlantic scribner's the nation the critic the literary world about all the leading university and college presidents etc some two hundred names in all the proposed visit of miss amelia b edwards to the united states to see our country and to lecture upon subjects in which she is an acknowledged authority if carried into effect will be an event of special interest to the intelligent and cultivated people of our land she may be assured of a hearty welcome and her lectures cannot fail to prove of rare profit and pleasure to her audiences what i predicted having in mind her lectures in great britain was abundantly confirmed by her tour the picturesqueness of her style the interest of her facts and the sympathetic charm of her delivery have evoked unwonted enthusiasm her voice is peculiarly clear agreeable and far-reaching and she possesses in a remarkable degree the power of holding her audiences herself a practical archaeologist she relates the wonders of our inheritance in ancient egypt and the stirring story of egyptian exploration with an intelligent vividness which makes those faraway subjects as interesting as a sensational romance herself a skilful artist she can in an instant deftly illustrate with chalk some hieroglyphic puzzle or curious relationship between egyptian and greek arts miss edwards on august thirtieth eighteen eighty nine wrote me of my preparations on her behalf as you know i never lectured in my life till november third eighteen eighty seven 
and then only because Mr. Horsfall, who was on the corporation committee, insisted on it that I could, should, and must do it. It would never have entered into my head to attempt such a thing had he not done this. I attribute my success in lecturing to the training my voice had in youth, for I was a good singer. I could have taken to opera singing had I wished to earn my bread and fame in that way. My voice was of extraordinary compass and flexibility. Also, I had considerable taste for acting, and played a good deal in amateur theatricals when a girl, between fifteen and twenty. I think these last experiences have probably much to do with that clearness of utterance, etc., which are essential to successful lecturing. But I should like the American world to understand that I do none of these things now, nor have done them for the last thirty years. I am a very staid, quiet, hard-working body now. The Egypt Exploration Fund owed an unpayable debt to Miss Edwards. That debt is now due, will be ever due, to her memory. Miss Edwards, as the obituary in the annual report of the fund says, has followed Erasmus Wilson and James Russell Lowell. Mr. Lowell was the honorary vice president of the society. His successor was George William Curtis. In honor of their memory, we who survive have a sacred duty to the great enterprise consecrated by their names. It may be truly added that the archaeological bread she cast upon the waters returned to her not after many days. Her position as honorary secretary of our society and the discoveries in progress afforded her a unique opportunity, which she splendidly utilized, of depicting to our age old Egypt as touched by the transforming wand of exploration. By that opportunity she gained a scientific as well as an official status. Her doctorates from Columbia, Smith, and Bethany Colleges, LHD, LLD, and PhD, were owing to it. Because of it, she lectured in Great Britain, followed by an every way successful tour in the United States. It was the sin qua non of her best journalistic and magazine articles. Such an opportunity led up to the throne of Egyptology, upon which this sketch crowns her queen. And in short, it is through the society and her official position, and owing to the past decade of discoveries, that she won enduring fame. While we mourn her untimely call from the high mission she so grandly performed in the promotion of discovery and in the diffusion of knowledge acquired by it, we are profoundly thankful for the much that she lived to accomplish. May I add that through her personal efforts or influence, a large share of the funds from Great Britain were raised for our work, and that my lamented associate was a constant inspiration to me in my literary and financial efforts to advance our cause in the United States? The Archaeological Survey of Egypt, advocated by Mr. F. L. Griffith, now its superintendent, was greatly promoted by Dr. Edwards. In October last, she edited a special extra report of the survey, in order, as she wrote me, to create or increase an interest in it. Her last official act was to issue in November a four-page circular respecting the claims and results of the survey. Her last important word to me, dated December 1st, was a nine-page letter, mostly relating to the Vicomte de Rouge's acceptance of the results of the fund's discoveries at the sites of Pithom, Goshen, etc., as contained in his recently published work, Géographie ancienne de la Basse Égypte. The cause of this able communication to me from Miss Edwards was a sublimely impertinent letter addressed to the society by a notorious dabbler in Egyptology, 
who relocates established sites and charges the great scholars and explorers with ignorance of the subject. He relies, as she remarks, on the little that is known and read in America on Egyptian subjects and on his own colossal effrontery to carry him through. Here ends my sketch. The rest is silence? Not so. Intellectual culture, education, may everywhere regard Miss Edwards as a generous creditor in the great exchange of knowledge. For out of Egypt has chiefly come our knowledge of the evolution of man during a period of 5,000 years B.C., and among the delightful surprises of our day is the enthusiasm, intelligence, skill, magnetism, and poetry with which her pen and voice have invested the old, old subject, now regenerated to notice, public notice, by discovery and by portrayal like hers. May other imaginative and scholarly souls take up the burden of her song in the promotion of exploration to reveal and to record monumental history by the sweet waters of the Nile. End of The Queen of Egyptology by William Copley Winslow